0: Before we get into this episode, I have a special announcement. True Crime Trucker podcast stickers are now available. To receive your own, simply go to www.patreon.com backslash truecrimetruckerspodcast. If you donate just $1, I will personally mail you one of these stickers along with a thank you note. These stickers measure 3 inches by 5 inches and are on quality vinyl so they are perfect for outdoor use. They have the True Crime Truckers podcast logo on them. Once again, that's www.patreon.com backslash podcast to receive these exclusive stickers. This podcast deals with true crime. I will be speaking openly and frankly about subjects such as murder, rape, and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. In last week's episode, we went over John Wayne Gacy's childhood, his proclivity to sexually assault teen boys, and his early prison time in the state of Iowa. We also went over his subsequent change from simply assaulting into murder. In this episode, we will go over the bulk of his murders and the ineptitude of the Chicago police during this time to catch him sooner, tonight on the True Crime Truckers podcast. Part 2 of John Wayne Gacy, The Killer Clown. majority of Gacy's murders were committed between 1976 and 1978, which he later referred to as his, quote, cruising years. Now that he had his house to himself, one month after his divorce was finalized, Gacy abducted and murdered an 18-year-old named Darnell Sampson. Sampson was last seen alive in Chicago on April 6, 1976. Five weeks later, on the afternoon of May 14, a 15-year-old named Randall Reffet disappeared while walking home from Sen High School. The youth was gagged with a cloth, causing him to die of asphyxiation. Hours after Reffitt had been abducted, a 14-year-old named Samuel Stapleton vanished as he walked to his home from his sister's apartment. Both youths were buried in the same grave in the crawl space On June 3, 1976, Gacy killed a 17-year-old Lakeview youth named Michael Bonin. He disappeared while traveling from Chicago to Waukegan and was strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space. Ten days later, a 16-year-old uptown youth named William Carroll was murdered and buried directly beneath Gacy's kitchen. Carroll may have been the first of four males known to have been murdered between June 13th and August 6th, 1976 and who were buried in a common grave located beneath Gacy's kitchen and laundry room. The three identified youths killed between June 13th and August 6th were aged between 16 and 17 years old, whereas the only unidentified male known to have been murdered between these dates is a man with medium dark brown hair, estimated to have been aged between 23 and 30 years old, and between 5 foot 1 and 5 foot 6 inches tall. This man had two missing upper front teeth at the time of his disappearance, leading investigators to believe this particular victim most likely wore a denture. He was buried directly beneath the body of a 16-year-old Minnesota youth named James Hackinson, who was last known to have phoned his family on August 5th, and whose body was itself buried directly beneath that of a 17-year-old Burnsville youth named Rick Johnson, who was last seen alive on August 6th. On July 26, 1976, Gacy employed an 18-year-old named David Cram. On August 21, Cram moved into this house. The following day, Gacy conned Cram into donning handcuffs while the youth was inebriated. Gacy swung Cram around while holding the chain linking the cuffs, then informed him that he intended to rape him. Cram, who had spent a year in the army, kicked Gacy in the face, then freed himself from the handcuffs as Gacy laid prone. One month later, Gacy appeared at Cram's bedroom door with the intention to rape him and said, Dave, you really don't know who I am. Maybe it would be good if you just give me what I want. Cram resisted Gacy's attempts to assault him, and Gacy left his bedroom. After this incident, Cram moved out of Gacy's home and subsequently left PDM contractors although he did periodically work for Gacy over the following years. Shortly after Cram had vacated Gacy's residence, another employee of PDM contractors, 18-year-old Michael Rossi, moved into Gacy's house. Two further unidentified males are estimated to have been killed between August and October of 1976. One of these victims was buried directly above the body of William Carroll, who had been murdered on June 13th. His body had been buried higher than the body of Rick Johnston, who was last seen on August 6th. This particular unidentified male is estimated to have been aged between 15 and 24 years old and had light brown hair. Sequential burial pattern victims within the crawl space, plus circumstantial fact that Cram had not lived with Gacy before August 20th, leave a possible date of between August 6th and August 20th, 1976. At the time this particular man was murdered. The second unidentified male likely to have been murdered between August and October of 1976 is a youth with dark brown wavy hair aged between 18 and 22 years old who is known to have suffered from an abscessed tooth at the time of his murder. This male was buried in the northeast corner of the crawl space. Subsequent recollections by an employee of PDM contractors of a trench Gacy had ordered him to dig on or before October 5, 1976, being the location where this particular victim was buried, suggests a date between August and October 1976 as being when this particular victim was murdered. On October 24, 1976, Gacy abducted and killed two teenage friends named Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino. The two youths were last seen outside of a restaurant on Clark Street. Both youths were strangled and buried in the same grave in the crawl space. Two days later, a 19-year-old employee of PDM contractors named William Bundy disappeared after informing his family he was to attend a party. Bundy was also strangled and buried in the crawl space, buried directly beneath Gacy's master bedroom. In December of 1976, another PDM employee 17-year-old Gregory Godzik, disappeared. He was last seen by his girlfriend outside her house after he had driven her home following a date. Godzik had worked for PDM for only three weeks before he disappeared. In the time he had worked for Gacy, he informed his family that Gacy had him, quote, dig trenches for some kind of drain tiles, unquote, in his crawl space. Godzik's car was later found abandoned in Nile's. His parents and older sister, Eugenia, contacted Gacy about Greg's disappearance. Gacy claimed to the family that Greg had run away from home, having indicated to Gacy before his disappearance that he wished to do so. Gacy also claimed to have received a recorded answering machine message from Godzik shortly after the youth had disappeared. When asked if he could play back the message to Godzik's parents, Gacy stated he had erased it. A month later, on January twentieth, nineteen 1977, John Sizik, a 19-year-old acquaintance of Bukovic, Godzik, and Gacy, disappeared. Seizek was lured to Gacy's house on the pretext of selling his Plymouth satellite to Gacy. He was buried in Gacy's crawlspace directly above the body of Godzik. A ring worn by Sizek which bore his initials, was retained in a dresser in Gacy's master bedroom. Gacy also kept Sisek's portable Motorola TV in his bedroom, and later sold the used car to Michael Rossi. Between December 1976 and March 1977, Gacy is known to have killed an unidentified young man estimated to be around 25 years old. An inspection upon the key fob found among personal artifacts buried with this unknown victim suggests his first name may have been Greg or Gregory. His body was buried in the crawl space beneath the body of a 20 year old named John Prestige, a Michigan youth visiting friends in Chicago, whom Gacy killed on March 15th. After the murder of Prestige, Gacy is believed to have murdered one further unidentified youth exhumed from his crawl space. Although the timing of this particular youth's murder is inconclusive, the youth was buried parallel to the wall of Gacy's crawl space directly beneath the entrance to his home. The two victims murdered on the same day in May 1976 were buried alongside this youth, yet sequential burial patterns of three victims murdered in 1977 leave an equal possibility this particular victim may have been murdered in the spring or the summer of 1977. All that is known about this youth is that he was aged between 17 and 21 years old and that he had suffered a fractured left collarbone before his disappearance. In March 1977, Gacy was hired as a construction supervisor for P.E. Systems, a firm which specialized in nationwide remodeling of drugstores. As a result of this contract, Gacy regularly traveled to other states to supervise construction projects, and he later stated that through both businesses, PDM contractors and P.E. Systems, he would often simultaneously work on four contract projects with almost 80 buildings being successfully remodeled in 1977 alone. In April of 1977, Michael Rossi moved out of Gacy's home. The same month, Gacy became temporarily engaged to a woman that he had been dating for three months, and his fiancée moved into the house. By mutual agreement, the engagement was called off in June of that year. His fiancée moved out of his home. The following month, Gacy killed a 19-year-old Crystal Lake youth named Matthew Bowman, he was buried in the crawl space, with a tourniquet used to strangle him, still knotted around his neck. In August 1977, a clue emerged to the disappearance of John Sizak. Michael Rossi, who had bought Sizik's car from Gacy, was arrested for stealing gasoline from a service station while driving the car. The attendant noted the license plate number and police traced the car to Gacy's house. When questioned, Gacy told officers that Sisek had sold the car to him in February with the explanation that he needed money to leave town. The police did not pursue the matter further, although they did inform Syzak's mother that her son had sold his car to Gacy. Late 1977, Gacy began dating Carol Hoff in the hopes of reconciliation. By the end of 1977, Gacy is also known to have murdered an additional six young men between the ages of 16 and 21. The first of these six victims, 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, was last seen alive on September 15. Gilroy, the son of a Chicago police sergeant, was suffocated and buried in the crawl space. On September 12th, Gacy had flown to Pittsburgh to supervise a remodeling project and did not return to Chicago until September 16th. As Gacy is known to have been in another state at the time of this youth was last seen, it is possible that Gacy's subsequent claims that he had not acted alone in some murders may have held credence. Ten days after Gilroy was last seen, a 19-year-old U.S. Marine named John Mowry disappeared after leaving his mother's house to walk to his own apartment. Maury was strangled to death and buried in the northwest corner of a crawl space perpendicular to the body of William Bundy. On October 17th, a 21-year-old Minnesota youth named Russell Nelson disappeared. He was last seen outside a Chicago bar. Nelson died of suffocation and was also buried in the crawl space. Less than four weeks later, a 16-year-old Kalamazoo youth named Robert Winch was murdered and buried in the crawl space, and on November 18th, a twenty year old father of one named Tommy Bolling disappeared after leaving a Chicago bar. Both Winch and Bowling were strangled to death, and both youths were buried in the crawl space directly beneath the hallway. Three weeks after the murder of Tommy Bowling, on december 9th, a nineteen year old US Marine named David Talsma disappeared after informing his mother he was to attend a rock concert in Hammond. Talsma was strangled with a ligature and buried in the crawl space. On December 30, 1977, Gacy abducted a 19-year-old student named Robert Donnelly from a Chicago bus stop at gunpoint. Gacy drove Donnelly home with him, raped him, tortured him with various devices, and repeatedly dunked his head into a bathtub filled with water until he passed out, then revived him. Donnelly later testified at Gacy's trial that he was in such pain that he asked Gacy to kill him to, quote, get it over with, to which Gacy replied, quote, I'm getting round to it. After several hours of assaulting and torturing the youth, Gacy drove Donnelly to his place of work, removed the handcuffs from the youth's wrist, and released him. Donnelly reported the assault, and Gacy was questioned about it on January 6, 1978. Gacy admitted to having a, quote, sex slave with Donnelly, but insisted everything was consensual. The police believed him, and no charges were filed. The following month, Gacy killed a 19-year-old youth named William Kindred, who disappeared on February 16, 1978, after telling his fiancée he was to spend the evening in a bar. Kindred was the final victim to be buried in Gacy's crawlspace, and Gacy began disposing of his victims in the Des Plains River. In March 1978, Gacy lured a 26-year-old named Jeffrey Riganel to his car. Upon entering his car, the young man was chloroformed and driven to the house on Somerdale, where he was raped, tortured with various instruments, Including lit candles and whips, and repeatedly chloroformed into unconsciousness. Rignall was then driven to Lincoln Park, where he was dumped, unconscious but alive. Eventually, he managed to stagger to his girlfriend's apartment. Rignall was later informed the chloroform had permanently damaged his liver. Police were again informed of the assault, but did not investigate Gazey. Rignall was able to recall through the chloroform haze that night. Gacy's distinctive black Oldsmobile, the Kennedy Expressway, and a particular side street. He snaked out the exit on the expressway where he knew he had been driven until, in April, he saw Gacy's distinctive black Oldsmobile, which Rignall and his friends followed to 8213 West Somerdale. Police issued an arrest warrant, and Gacy was arrested on July 15th. He was facing an impeding trial for a battery charge for Rignell Rignall incident when he was arrested in December for the murders. Gacy later confessed to the police that he had initially considered stowing the bodies in his attic, but had been worried of complications arising from excessive leakage. Therefore, he had opted to dispose of his victims off of the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River. Gacy stated he had thrown five bodies off the I-55 bridge into Des Plaines River in 1978, one of which is believed to have landed upon a passing barge, although only four of these bodies were ever found. The first known victim thrown from the I-55 bridge into the Des Plaines River was 20-year-old Timothy O'Rourke. He was killed in mid-June after leaving his Dover Street apartment, having informed his roommate of his intentions to purchase cigarettes. His body was found six miles downstream on June 30th. On November 4th, Gacy killed a 19-year-old named Frank Landkin. His body was found in the Des Plaines River on November 12th. Less than three weeks later, on November 24th, a 20-year-old Elmwood Park youth named James Mazra disappeared after sharing Thanksgiving dinner with his family. His body was found on December 28th. The cause of death in the case of Langan was certified as suffocation through the youth's own underwear being lodged down his throat, plugging his airway and effectively causing him to drown in his own vomit. Mazra had been strangled with a ligature. On the afternoon of December 11th, 1978, Gacy visited a Des Plaines pharmacy to discuss a potential remodeling deal with the owner of the store, Phil Torf. While Gacy was within earshot of a 15-year-old part-time employee named Robert Jerome Peist, he mentioned that he had hired teenage boys at the starting wage of $5 per hour, almost double the pay Peist earned at the pharmacy. After Gacy left the store, Peist told his mother that, quote, some contractor wants me to talk about a job, unquote. Peist left the store promising to return shortly. When Peist failed to return, his family filed a missing persons report on their son with the Des Plaines Police. The owner of the pharmacy named Gacy as the contractor Peist had most likely left the store to talk about the job. Gacy denied talking to Peist when Des Plaines Police visited his home the following evening, indicating he had seen two youths working at the pharmacy and that he had asked one of them, whom he believed to be Peist, whether any remodeling materials were present in the rear of the store. He was adamant, however, that he had not offered Peist a job and promised to come to the station later that evening to make a statement confirming this, indicating he was unable to do so at that moment as his uncle had just died. At 3.20 a.m., Casey covered in mud arrived at the police station claiming he had been involved in a car accident. Upon returning to the police station later that day, Gacy denied any involvement in the disappearance of Robert Peist, and repeated that he had not offered the youth a job. When asked why he had returned to the pharmacy at 8 p.m. on December 11th, Gacy claimed he had done so in response to a phone call from Phil Torf, informing him that he had left his appointment book at the store. Detectives had already spoken with Torf, who had stated that he had placed no such call to Gacy. At the request of detectives, Casey prepared a written statement that detailed his movements on December 11th. Des Plaines police were convinced Casey was behind Pice's disappearance and checked Casey's records, discovering that he had an outstanding battery charge against him in Chicago and had served a prison sentence in Iowa for the sodomy of a fifteen-year-old boy. A search of Gacy's house on December 13th was ordered by a judge at the request of detectives and turned up several suspicious items. A 1975 high school class ring engraved with the initials J.A.S., various driver's license, handcuffs, a 2 by 4 with holes drilled in the ends, books on homosexuality and pedestry, a syringe, male clothing too small for Gacy, a 6 millimeter Beretta starter pistol, and a photo receipt from the pharmacy where Robert Pice worked. Police decided to confiscate Gacy's old mobile along with other PDM vehicles and assigned a two man surveillance team to follow Gacy while they continued to investigate Gacy regarding Pice's disappearance. The following day, investigators received a phone call from Michael Rossi, who informed investigators both of Gregory Godsick's disappearance and the fact another PDM employee, Charles Hotla, had been found drowned in the Illinois River the previous year. December 15th, Des Plaines investigators obtained further details upon Gacy's battery charge, learning the complainant, Jeffrey Rignall had reported that Gacy had lured him into his car, chloroformed him, raped him, and dumped him with severe chest and facial burns and rectal bleeding in Lincoln Park the following morning. In an interview with Gacy's former wife the same day, they learned of the disappearance of John Buckovich the same day, Maine West High School ring was traced to John A. Sizek. In an interview with Sizek's mother the same day, she informed officers of the January 1977 disappearance of her son that several items from his apartment were also missing, including a Motorola TV set. She added that investigators had informed her the months following his disappearance that her son had apparently sold his Plymouth satellite to John Gacy. Investigators noticed that one of Gacy's employees, Michael Rossi, drove a similar car to Sizek's. A check of the VIN confirmed that the car driven by Rossi had belonged to Sizek. By December 16th, Gacy was becoming affable with the surveillance detectives regularly inviting them to join him for meals in various restaurants and occasionally for drinks in bars or in his home he repeatedly denied that he had anything to do with Pike's disappearance and accused the officers of harassing him because of his political connections or because of his use of recreational drugs Knowing these officers were unlikely to arrest him on anything trivial, he openly taunted them by flouting traffic laws and succeeded in losing his pursuers on more than one occasion. On December 17th, investigators conducted a formal interview of Michael Rossi, who informed them Gacy had sold Sysak's vehicle to him with the explanation that he had bought the car from Sysak because the youth needed money to move to California. A further examination of Gacy's Old Mobile was conducted on this date. In the course of examining the trunk of the car, the investigators discovered a small cluster of fibers which may have been human hair. These fibers were sent for further analysis. That evening, officers conducted a test using three trained German Shepherd search dogs to determine whether Peist had been present in any of Gacy's vehicles dogs were allowed to examine each of Gacy's vehicles, whereupon one dog approached Gacy's automobile and laid upon the passenger seat. In what the dog handler informed investigators was a, quote, death reaction, indicating the body of Robert Peist had been present in this vehicle. That evening, Gacy invited two of the surveillance detectives to a restaurant for a meal. In the early hours of December 18th, he invited the same officers to another restaurant, where, Over breakfast, he talked of his business, his marriages, and his activities as a registered clown. At one point during the conversation, Gacy remarked to one of the surveillance detectives, You know, clowns can get away with murder, unquote. By December 18th, Gacy was beginning to show visible signs of strain as a result of the constant surveillance. He was unshaven, looked tired, appeared anxious, and was drinking heavily. That afternoon, he drove to his lawyer's office to prepare a $750,000 civil suit against the Des Plaines Police, demanding that they cease their surveillance. The same day, the serial number of the Nilson Pharmacy photo receipt found at Gacy's Kitchen was traced to 17-year-old Kim Byers, a colleague of Peist at Nielsen's Pharmacy who admitted when contacted in person the following day that she had worn the jacket and had placed the receipt in the parka pocket just before she gave the parka to Peist as he left the store to talk with the contractor. This revelation contradicted Gacy's previous statements that he had no contact with Robert Peist on the evening of December 11th. The presence of this receipt indicated that Gacy must have been in contact with Robert Peist after the youth had left the Nielsen Pharmacy on December 11. The same evening, Michael Rossi was interviewed a second time. On this occasion, Rossi was more cooperative, informing detectives that in the summer of 1977, Gacy had him spread 10 bags of lime in a crawl space in the house. On December 19th, investigators began compiling evidence for a second search warrant of Gacy's house, the same day Gacy's lawyers filed the civil suit against the Des Plaines Police. The hearing of that suit was scheduled for December 22nd. That afternoon, Gacy invited two of the surveillance detectives inside the house. On this occasion, as one of the officers distracted Gacy with conversation, another officer walked into Gacy's bedroom in an unsuccessful attempt to write down the serial number of the Motorola TV set they suspected belonged to John Sizick. While flushing Gacy's toilet, This officer noted the smell he suspected could be that of rotting corpses emanating from a heating duct. The officers who previously searched Gacy's house had failed to notice this, as on that occasion the house had been cold. Both David Cram and Michael Rossi were interviewed by investigators on December 20th. Rossi had agreed to be interviewed in relation to his possible links with John Sizig. As well as the disappearance of Robert Peist. When questioned by Detective Joseph R. Kozanskak as to where he believed Gacy had placed Peist's body, Rossi replied, quote, In the crawl space. He could have put them in the crawl space. Unquote. A polygraph test conducted upon the youth showed his response to questions to be inconclusive. However, Upon his agreeing to a subsequent visual test in which a map of Cook County was derived into twelve grid section number one to twelve, with Gacy's home marked in the fourth grid section, cousin Zach noted the extreme response in Rossi's blood pressure when he asked, "Is the body of Robert Pice buried in grid number 4? Upon hearing the question, Rossi refused to continue with polygraph questioning, although he did discuss further his digging trenches in the crawl space, and remarked upon Gacy's insistence that he not deviate from where he was instructed to dig. Graham himself informed investigators of Gacy's attempts to rape him in 1976, and stated that after he and Gacy had returned to his home after the December 13th search of his property, Gacy had turned pale upon noting a clot of mud on his carpet, which he suspected had come from his crawlspace. Cram then stated Gacy had grabbed a flashlight and immediately entered the crawl space to look for evidence of digging. When asked whether he had been to the crawl space, Cram replied that he had been asked by Gacy to spread lime down there and also dug trenches upon Gacy's behest with the explanation they were for plumbing. Cram stated these trenches were 2 feet wide, 6 feet long, and 2 feet deep. The size of graves on the evening of December 20th, Gacy drove to his lawyer's office in Park Ridge to attend a pre-scheduled meeting he had arranged with them, ostensibly to discuss the progress of his civil suit. Upon his arrival, Gacy appeared disheveled and immediately asked for an alcoholic drink, whereupon Sam Arante fetched a bottle of whiskey from his car. Upon his return, Amarante asked Gacy what he had to discuss with him. Gacy picked up a copy of the Daily Herald from Amarante's desk. He pointed to the front page article covering the disappearance of Robert Pice, and informed his lawyer, quote, this boy is dead, he's in a river, unquote. Over the following hours, Gacy gave a rambling confession that ran into the early hours of the following morning. He began to inform Amarante and Stevens that he had been the judge, the jury, and the executioner of many, many people, most of whom he stated were buried in his crawlspace, and others in the Des Plaines River some victims he referred to by name most he dismissed as male prostitutes hustlers and liars whom he would give the rope trick on other occasions he stated he would wake up to find quote, dead strangled kids on his floor with their hands cut behind their back in reference to robert Pice, gacy stated that he had placed a tourniquet around his neck and peist was crying and scared as a result of the alcohol he had consumed gacy fell asleep midway through his confession Amarante immediately arranged a psychiatric appointment for Gacy at 9 a.m. that morning. Upon awakening several hours later, Gacy simply shook his head when informed by Amarante he had earlier confessed to killing approximately 30 people, stating, "Well, I can't think about this right now, I've got things to do, unquote. Ignoring his lawyer's advice regarding his scheduled appointments, Gacy left their office and attended to the needs of his business, Gacy later recollected that his memory of his final day of freedom as being, quote, hazy, adding that he knew his arrest was inevitable, and that in his final hours of freedom, he intended to visit his friends, say his final farewells. Upon leaving his lawyer's office, Gacy drove to a Shell gas station, where, in the course of filling his rental car, he handed a small bag of cannabis to the attendant, a youth named Lance Jacobson. Jacobson immediately handed the bag to the surveillance officers, adding that Gacy told him, quote, the end is coming. These guys are going to kill me, unquote. Gacy then drove to the home of a fellow contractor, Ronald Rode. Inside Rode's living room, Gacy hugged Rode before bursting into tears saying, quote, I killed 30 people, give or take a few, unquote. Gacy then left Rhodes home to meet with Michael Rossi and David Cram as he drove along the expressway. The surveillance officers noticed he was holding a rosary to his chin as he prayed while driving. After talking with Cram and Rossi at Cram's home, Gacy had Cram drive him to a scheduled meeting with Leroy Stevens. As he spoke with his lawyer, Cram informed the officers that Gacy had earlier divulged to both himself and Rossi, That the previous evening he had confessed to his lawyers his guilt over 30 murders. Upon concluding a meeting with his lawyer, Gacy and Cram drove to the May Hill Cemetery where his father was buried. As Gacy drove to various locations that morning, police outlined their formal draft of the second search warrant. The purpose of the warrant was specifically to search for the body of Robert Peist in the crawl space. Upon hearing radioed reports from the surveillance detectives, That, in light of his erratic behavior, Gacy might be about to commit suicide, police decided to arrest him upon the charge of possession and distribution of marijuana, in order to hold him into custody, as a formal request for a search warrant was presented. At 4.30, on the afternoon of December 21st, the eve of the hearing of Gacy's civil suit, the request for a second search warrant was granted by Judge Marvin J. Peters. Armed with the signed search warrant, police and evidence technicians quickly drove to Gacy's home. Upon their arrival, officers found that Gacy had unplugged his sump pump and that the crawl space was flooded with water. To clear the water, they simply replaced the plug and waited for the water to drain. After it had done so, an evidence technician named Daniel Gentry entered the 28 by 38 foot crawl space and crawled into the southwest area and began digging. Within minutes, he had uncovered putrefied flesh and a human arm bone. Gentry immediately shouted to the investigators that they could charge Gacy with murder. Gentry added the remark, quote, I think this place is full of kids, unquote. After being informed that the police had found human remains in his crawlspace and that he would now face murder charges, Gacy told the officers he wanted to, quote, clear the air adding that he knew his arrest was inevitable since he had spent the previous evening on the couch in his lawyer's office. In the early hours of December 22, 1978, Gacy confessed to the police that since 1972 he had committed approximately 25 to 30 murders, all of whom he falsely claimed were of teenage male runaways or male prostitutes, whom he would typically abduct from Chicago's Greyhound bus station, from Bug House Square, or simply off the streets. The victims would often be grabbed by force or conned into believing Gacy, often carrying a sheriff's badge and placing spotlights on his black Oldsmobile, was a policeman. Others would be lured to his house with either a promise of a job, with his construction company, or with the offer of money for sex. Once back at Gacy's house, the victims would be handcuffed or otherwise bound, then sexually assaulted and tortured muffled his victim's screams, Gacy would often stick cloth rags or items of the victim's own clothing in their mouth. Some victims had been partially drowned in his bathtub before they had been revived, enabling Gacy to continue his prolonged assault. Many of his victims had been strangled with a tourniquet, which Gacy referred to as his, quote, rope trick. Occasionally, the victims had convulsed for an hour or two after the rope trick before dying. With only two exceptions, all of his victims had died between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. When asked where he drew the inspiration for the 2 by 4 found at his house, in which he had manacled many of his victims, Gacy stated that he had been inspired to construct the device from reading about the Houston mass murders. The victims were usually lured alone to his house, although on approximately three occasions Gacy had what he called, quote, doubles. Occasions where he killed two victims on the same evening. After death, the victims' bodies were typically to be stored beneath his bed for up to 24 hours before burial in the crawlspace, although the bodies of some victims had been taken to his garage and embalmed prior to their burial. Most victims were buried in Gacy's crawlspace, where he would periodically pour quicklime to hasten the decomposition of their bodies. In January 1979, he had planned to further conceal the corpses by covering the entire crawl space with concrete. Casey stated that he had lost count of the number of victims buried in his crawl space and had initially considered stowing the bodies in his attic before opting to dispose of his victims off the I-55 bridge into Des Plaines River. Thus, the final five victims, all killed in 1978, were disposed of in this manner because his crawl space was full. When specifically questioned about Robert Peist, Casey confessed to strangling the youth at his house on the evening of December 11th after luring him there, adding that he had been interrupted by a phone call from a business colleague while doing so. He also admitted to having slept alongside the youth's body that evening, before disposing of the corpse in the Des Plaines River the following evening. The reason he had arrived at the Des Plaines police station in a dirty and disheveled manner in the early hours of December 13th was that he had been in a minor traffic accident, after disposing of Pike's body, en route to his appointment with the Des Plaines officers. In this accident, his vehicle had slid off an ice-covered road, and he had unsuccessfully attempted to free the vehicle himself, before the vehicle had to be towed from its location. He also confessed to the police that he had buried the body of John Butkovich in his garage. To assist the officers in their search for the victims buried in his house, Gacy drew a rough diagram of his basement, upon a phone message sheet to show where the bodies were buried. In the next episode, we will go over the investigation, as well as the trial of John Wayne Gacy. We will also discuss his time in prison, as well as his execution. We will discuss the theory that he may have had an accomplice during some, if not all, of his murders. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at michael.print81 or visit my webpage at www.ageofradio.org backslash podcast And if you would like to make a donation, go to www.patreon.com backslash podcast. I will return in two weeks with the conclusion of John Wayne Gacy.